open up to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our study here through Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. Now, we learned last week that we are one body, amen, made up of individual parts. Christ wants to and will continually build up the body. He'll continually do a work within us to build us up to bring glory to the head, Jesus Christ. So that every body part we've come to learn plays function in building the whole body. In other words, every individual in the body of Christ has been gifted by Christ to fulfill and to do the work of the ministry. And in the end, day by day, week after week, month by month, year by year, the head is glorified by what the body does in reflecting the head, representing the head here on earth, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to study today. We're going to continue on in, in verse 11 where we left off. We're going to read the verses 11 through 16 because they're a unit. And then we're going to study verses 11 and 12 this morning. And before I go on, I know last week, um, I'll apologize, because uh, we could have probably busted out two, two sermons after last week's message. So, my apologies, I know that was an overload, I went back and I listened to it myself, and I was like, that was a load. So, uh, if you got lost, I encourage you to get the CD, you can go back over it again. And we're going to cover two verses today and two points. Alright? Two verses, two points. So let's go ahead and pick up our reading of verse 11. We'll read verses 11 through 16 as a unit, and we'll cover those over the next two or three weeks. Verse 11. And he himself, Christ that is, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things, into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your divine truth. We thank you that we can join together as a body, to learn, to grow in knowledge, to grow in an understanding of who you are, what you've done, being continually, daily renewed in our thinking, to line our thinking up with yours as declared through Scripture. And Father, we give you this time and ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see you more clearly through the Scriptures. And in knowing you more clearly, may we understand who we are in you and what it is you've called us to do as representatives of you on behalf of the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's his name that we gather here today, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.
We're going to look at two things today. We're going to study verses 11 through 12. We're going to look at the, the first point. We're going to look at the specific gifts of God to the church as a whole, universally speaking. From the apostolic age, from the time that Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven, breathed life into his church, from that point until his return, God has given gifts to the church. And those gifts specifically are men. Men that he's called to that purpose. The second thing we're going to look at is the results that those gifts generate. And the results that those gifts generate is found in verse 12, and that's perfected saints. Perfected saints. First, Christ's gift to the church, for the church, universally, worldwide, and then the thing that those gifts produce are perfected saints. Jesus said this in Matthew 5.48, Sermon on the Mount. He said, Therefore, be ye perfect, just as my Father in heaven is perfect. Perfection. God demands perfection. To get to heaven, you must be perfect. To step into the presence of God, you must be sinless. Good news or bad news for you today? Okay, it's bad news because there's no one in here that's practically perfect. In other words, no one gets to heaven. By what you do, your good works will never outweigh your bad, and you will never be able to enter into the presence of a holy, righteous, pure God based on your works. Ever. You will never be able to, to outweigh good in your life with the bad. You come to a specific point in your age where guilt builds up, and you realize that, man, I'm going to be facing my maker one day. I better start getting right. So you attempt in your flesh, you in your own power to do works of good which outweigh all the bad that you've ever done, including your wicked thinking. Amen? It's impossible. But yet God demands perfection. Therefore God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven, became a human being. We learned last week that He lowered Himself. Before He could ascend, He had to descend into the lower parts. And by descending into the lower parts, we come to realize through Scripture that it's a picture given us in that He lowered Himself to the depths of humanity on the earth, all the way to the point of going into the lower parts of a womb to actually become a human being. Jesus is not a man that we've elevated to be God. He's, a, he's God himself who lowered himself to become a human being. He met the perfect standard of the Father, sinlessness, and went to the cross on your, half, on your behalf, on my behalf, if you're a Christian here today, and all of the righteousness that is Christ has been placed upon your account. And we know that to be what? Positional perfection. You are perfect in Christ. That is our position. So, positionally speaking, if you're a believer here today, you are perfect in the sight of God. Because of that which Christ has done on your account. All of your sin was placed upon His account. On the cross. And the wrath of God was unleashed upon Him for your sake and my sake. So you can stand here today as Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You ought to rejoice in that. I hope you rejoice in that. Colossians 2.10 says that you are complete in Him. Colossians 2.10. Complete. 
who is the head of all principality and power. So true believers are in, in Christ, therefore they are as Christ in the sight of God. Now the other thing that we know that we have as believers, as far as perfection goes, is that we will one day have ultimate perfection. Because of our positional perfection, when you die, you will step into ultimate perfection. Our citizenship is not on earth as believers. Our citizenship is in heaven. Amen? And when we see him, we will see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, we will then become like him. We will step into the very presence of him because we are of him in Christ. Ultimate perfection. That's the hope that we have. If you're in Christ, you don't have to hope to get saved. Because if you are saved, the hope is you will enter into ultimate perfection. Sinlessness. The glory of God. Heaven itself, amongst the angels, in all that has been glorified through the glory of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Where we are in Ephesians speaks about practical perfection. Where we live and breathe today. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul says, after he broke, off, broke down all of this theological truth in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he says, because you are positionally perfect, because you will be ultimately perfected one day, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you, I urge you, to walk worthy of that calling. The calling is salvation. He's saying this, guys. I'll reiterate this to the day I die. Because your position is up here in Christ, because you are this, I urge you to walk in a manner that reflects your position. Practical, day by day, living out the grace, living out the power, living out the perfection that's been granted to you by the residency of the Holy Spirit in you. That's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's calling us to do. And because of his finished work, because of that which he's done, that which he did on the cross, lowering himself and ascending back to his glorious throne, he's given us gifts. Given us gifts individually. And now what we're going to look at today is the corporate gifts he's dispensed to the body. To the body. And what that produces. Building up of the body. You guys, this is the heart of the ministry right here. What we're going to look at today is the heart of the ministry. It is vital, it is very important that the local church okay, be gathered for this purpose right here. You're not here to be entertained. You're here to be equipped with the Word of God, which will transform your thinking into more Christ-likeness. That's why we're here. That's what we're going to look at. Now, for the saints, saints are who? Anyone who's in Christ, all believers, if you're in Christ, you are saved by grace. You are therefore considered biblically as a saint. You are a saint. You come here to grow in the process of perfection. Now, for the saints to be perfected, they have to be equipped. To be equipped, they have to be taught. To be taught, they have to have a teaching shepherd. Right? A teaching shepherd. So the, the key phrase we're going to look at today is in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Your other translation may read, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, everything after verse 12 that we read is impossible unless verse 12 takes place. Everything that comes after verse 12 will not happen unless verse 12 happens. 
Everything after verse 12 is dependent upon verse 12. And for verse 12 to ha happen, there must be teaching shepherds that teaches and leads the flock in a manner that rightly reflects the head, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.1, you might want to mark this. It says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, who's the beloved? You are, we are, in Christ, we're the beloved ones. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now again, we learned last week that God dispensed gifts, plural, to the body, to individuals. And he dispensed those gifts as he pleased. You don't have to pray for specific gifts in the body. We're not called to pray for them. He gives them as he chooses. And we, we learn that, as is declared in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it says, But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. There's people in here who have the gift of helps. People have the gift of hospitality. People have the gifts of evangelism. There's gifts that have people that have the gifts of teaching. And we function within the gifts distributed to us for the sake of being unified as one whole body. And if one of those body parts has an infection, it will disrupt the whole operation of the body. It's like last week we talked about if your toe hurts and you got a busted toe, it will affect the way you walk. It will hinder you from being able to stand for any length of time. <clears throat> you know, guys in playing NFL, they get turf toe. You know where they are? They're on the sideline. Turf toe. One injury to the toe will inhibit a guy in the NFL, okay, great physical ability from being able to perform on game day. When sin infects the camp, when sin infects one of the body parts, it has an effect on the whole body. So those are the gifts distributed to the body. Christ dispensed those gifts as he so chooses. Now, Paul's going to go on here in verse 11, and he's going to talk not so much about these specific gifts, but again, the gifts he's given to the church as a whole. And before we get into those specific roles and the functions of those roles, I want to talk about a couple things that God uses as his tools also to perfect the saints. Now, when you hear the word perfect today, which you'll hear numerous times through this message and in Scripture, perfection means this, full maturity. Okay? Full, grown-up Christian. Now, there's no Christian in this room which will ever, will ever arrive here on earth. Amen? This is an ongoing, continual state of growth. You will never reach that absolute place of perfection until we reach ultimate perfection. But what God's calling for here every day, guys is complete Christ-likeness so much as you are able according to the power that's been granted to you. And it comes down to you yielding to that power, which is the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, God himself, who lives in you if you're saved. And the more one submits and yields himself to that power, which is a person, God the Holy Spirit, he will be able to do above and beyond what you could think or imagine, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. So with that in mind, perfection means full maturity. Full maturity. Now, before we get to that, 
God's going to use things as his tools to bring you, to bring me in our Christian walk to those places of maturity. And one of them is found in James chapter 1. Write this down, James 1, it says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various, what? Trials. Easy to say. Right? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfected and complete, lacking nothing. God will use trials in your life to bring you, to bring me to this place of maturity. And the only way for Christians to grow is to be put through trials, to be put through the fire. Because what does fire do to gold? What does fire do to silver? When you put it in the furnace, it brings all of the impurities up to the top. Dross. And what do you do with the dross? You scrape it off. And what do you have? Pure liquefied gold. Finer's fire. That's what God will do in your life to the day he takes you home. He will allow trials in your life. Another thing he'll allow, according to Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 5. But the God of all grace, grace, unmerited favor, grace. What was the grace gift we looked last week at? God actually gave himself. Ultimate grace. But may the, but, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Sometimes the testing through suffering is the very thing that's going to make the man or the woman of Christ. It's the very thing that will prove the man or woman of Christ. Suffering and trials, anybody, by the way, guys, can say they're a Christian. Anybody can say and profess Jesus Christ. But we know last week as we studied, not everyone who says is going to reach that place of ultimate perfection. But one thing that trials and suffering will do on this earth, it will reveal those that truly are His. Because that which we do in response to the trials, that's which, which we do and how we live in response to the suffering, reflects again the head, Jesus Christ. I know people who have come to, in big quotations here, faith in Christ, and they had these expectations that life would just turn around and everything in the physical life here on earth would be riches, glory, and honor here. And as soon as the wheels of life began to fall off the wagon, they're not around. As soon as trials came into their life to test this profession of faith, as soon as sufferings came into their life to test this profession of faith, they were gone. And also become angry or bitter at God many times. So those are some of the tools, those are some of the tools which the Lord allows into our life to perfect us, to bring us to the place of maturity. But there's another element that we're going to look at today. The element of growth that is most important of all, and it's the very reason that we meet here week after week, or it ought to be the reason in which you meet here after, week after week, and it's the Word of God. The Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 declares this, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, correct teaching, reproof, here's what's wrong, correction, here's what you do to get it right, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped unto all good works. So that leads us to our study. We understand some things that God uses now as his tools to perfect the saints, as his tools 
to mature the saints, his tools to bring a life that professes Christ into a place of manifesting that profession, you see, where the rubber meets the road. The greatest of all for the equipping of the saints is the Word of God. So how? How is he going to use the Word of God to perfect the saints? Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, what did he say? Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Because if the Word is living and active, which the Bible says it is, the living and active Word is going to do a work within the person who has a relationship with Christ, that perfected Word the Holy Spirit, the perfect one who lives in you, is going to utilize to transform your what? Your thinking. Thinking has to change before behavior does, you see. Once thinking changes, behavior changes. When behavior changes in a manner that glorifies God, the church and the body parts right, really, rightly reflect the head to the world. Amen? So, here's verse 11. Paul says now, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So let's look at the office of apostle first. We have the office of apostle. We have the office of prophet. This is not Old Testament prophet. This is New Testament prophet. Now, just as a side note. There's no human being, there's no man of God that is going to be able to perfect the saints. Though God's had great apostles, he's used great prophets, he's used great pastors, he's used great evangelists. If the Christian comes into this place isn't yielded to the Holy Spirit, all you're going to hear is like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Wah, 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 Remember that? It's just words. It's just words. If you come into a, in, in a rebellious state, let's say you are saved, and you're, you're, you're resistant to the words of God, the word of God can come in all day unless the spirit is yielded to the lordship of Christ. There's no area in which to work to bring that man or woman of God into a place of more maturity. More maturity. Apostles. Let's look at the office of the apostle. They were foundational to the church. Foundational to the church. Without them... Guys, we would not be studying this text today. Without the apostles, we would not study doctrine. The, the apostles laid down the doctrine. The apostles were called specifically by Jesus himself. There were 12 of them. Now, Jesus had many disciples, amen? He had many disciples. Hopefully, you're one, you are one here today. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You profess Christ. You ought to be a disciple. If you're not a disciple of Christ, a learner of Christ, you might want to examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith, according to Scripture. But these apostles were appointed. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. They were divinely appointed. These 12 men were divinely appointed by Christ himself, one of the qualifications was they had to see Christ resurrected from the dead. Now, there was 12. Judas was a fraud. Judas looked like the real deal. Judas did all the things that the other apostles did. He looked like a true child of God on the outside. But he's in hell today. 
Jesus called him the son of perdition, the son of hell. He said it would have been better for him that he had never been born. So he's not redeemed. If you've ever been taught that, it's not true. He was a fraud, he remained a fraud, and he died as a fraud, and the sorrow that he has was not a godly sorrow that led to repentance. It was a worldly sorrow, as, as uh, 2 Corinthians says, that leads to death. The son of perdition. So he was a fraud. He was replaced in Acts chapter 1 by another disciple, apostle by the name of Matthias. The apostles, the existing eleven, came together, and they went back to the scriptures, and they quoted the scriptures, and they said there must be one to replace this office. So Matthias was the one who replaced Judas the fraud. There were 12 of them. Okay, there, okay, very important. There is no apostolic succession as some teach today. Okay? There are no apostles today. There are no apostles in the sense of being appointed by Jesus Christ. There was 12. They had a purpose. They laid the foundation. They were part of that foundation. It was built on the cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone? Jesus himself. Okay? They laid the foundation of that in which we stand upon today. Twelve. There is none of this passing the torch to the next generation as far as apostle with a capital A. Okay? They were appointed by Christ himself, and they were granted abilities to authenticate that role, which we'll look at in a minute. Twelve apostles. I was reading this, uh, some guy, he has a string of degrees after his name, and he proclaims to be a modern-day apostle, okay, appointed by Christ. He goes by Apostle Eric. Pull, pull up Apostle Eric on the website and do a little background. I don't recommend it, but make sure you're very discerning. Now, there's some of these fellas on the TV who claim to be an apostle. Again, there were 12. Their ministry was foundational. Christ called them. Christ appointed them to that office for a purpose. That purpose was the foundation of what we have today. And everything's been built off that foundation. Jesus said this in Luke 22 about the 12. This is what he said. Luke 22, verse 29. And I bestow upon you a kingdom... Just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So these twelve will be sitting on twelve thrones. Now you may argue, who's the twelve? Who's number twelve? Matthias or Paul? Right? Paul's the apostle of apostles. Amen? So you might, you know, who it is, I don't know, you find out when you get there. But as I've been studying over the years, just a little introspection of my studies. I think the 12th is Matthias. Okay, this is a side note. John Meter's introspection through study, right? I believe Matthias is number 12 because he was selected at that time. And it was later on that Christ met Paul, Saul at the time, on the road to Damascus. When Saul was going to arrest Christians and persecute Christians, Christ called him. Okay? You remember back in the Gospels when John and James came with their mommy to Jesus? And their mom requested to Jesus, Lord, I have a request. He goes, what's your request? He said, when you, she said, when you set up your kingdom, can you see to it that my sons, John and James, sit one on your right and the other on the left? He goes, you know what you're requesting? 
Are you ready to drink the cup that I'm about ready to drink? Are you ready to partake in the wrath? Are you ready to partake of the suffering for that appointment? And then he went on to say, that is not mine to give, but it is for those in whom it is prepared for by my Father. You know, when I think about this, I think about those right, that right seat and that left seat. You know, I would think who would be there would be this. I would think it would be Moses and Paul. Leader of the Jews, leader of the Gentiles. Moses suffered 40 years with a couple million complainers walking around in the desert. He established the law. He was a prophet of the law. Paul ministered to the Gentiles. He was the apostle who laid down the doctrine of the church. So we have Old Testament prophet, New Testament apostle. My thoughts alone right there. But that's what study of Scripture will do. Stimulate your thinking. Amen? So anyway, bottom line, there's 12. There's 12. Whether it's Paul, Matthias, it doesn't matter. They were 12. They were appointed by Christ, called by Christ. And another thing they were given was this. Unique, miraculous powers for the office of apostle. Matthew 10, verse 1 says this. Mark this. Matthew 10. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. 2 Corinthians 12.12, mark this. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Signs of a what? Signs of an apostle. Signs of an apostle. Acts 2.43, many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Acts 15.12, then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them. Signs of an apostle. Signs and wonders used to authenticate their role in declaring their apostolic leadership, you see, in paving the way and laying the foundation for what we have today, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems as though those gifts, those unique powers, those miracles and things like that, kind of diminished toward the end of their ministry. Because if you remember early on, they were healing the lame, I mean, Paul was teaching in the third story somewhere, and this poor young kid falls asleep during his teaching, falls out the window and dies. You remember that? Paul goes down, lays hands on him, covers him up, comes back to life again. He raises this kid from the dead. It's really encouraging, by the way, when you preach and people nod off. They even nodded off with Paul, right? A teacher of teachers, right? So this kid... Falls asleep, he raises him from the dead. But yet later on in Paul's ministry, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last epistle that he wrote before he was decapitated, before he was beheaded for the faith, he wrote that letter and he talked about leaving Trophimus sick in Miletus. He goes, I left him, I departed, and I had to leave him there sick. So it seems as though those miraculous signs appointed to these 12 appointed ones, signs of the apostle, seem to diminish towards the end of the ministry once the church was well established. You see? It makes me cringe when Christians come up to me and say that they have the gift of miracles. Or they have the gifts of, like, healing. Okay? Does God heal today? Oh, yeah, I've seen people with stage 4 cancer healed. I've seen people with liver disease. They had six months to live healed. 
I laid hands on a man once with a group of other people, and he came back the next week in a small Bible study I was in, because I felt heat coming through the hand of John Leader. I do not have the gift of healing. I do not have that gift. Christ will heal, and I believe that the gift is dispensed to the body of Christ, that many have the gift of faith. And people who have an abundant amount of faith give themselves to guess what? Prayer. And we see the fruit of their prayers manifest through Christ healing them if he so chooses. I've been at the bedside of people who've been healed miraculously, up and walking, and I've been at the bedside of others who died the next day. Christ will heal who he's going to heal when he heals. But if someone has the gift of healing today, my exhortation to them, as I've said this before, please go down to Children's Hospital. Please go room to room. Please lay hands and pray over these little children so that they can all get up and walk out. You see? God is sovereign. Okay? God does heal if he so chooses. But these specific gifts, signs, miracles, and wonders, were the signs of what? An apostle. Signs of an apostle. He set up 12 on the earth, and there'll be 12 at the millennial kingdom, okay? When we get there, Christ sets up his literal kingdom. You'll see 12 sitting on 12 thrones. Now, there's another category that goes by the same term, apostle. Apostola, same word. 2 Corinthians 8 says this. If anyone inquires about Titus, okay, Titus was a pastor. He was not one of the appointed 12. He is my partner and fellow working concerning you. Or if our brethren inquired about, they are messengers, same word, apostle. They are messengers of this, the churches. So you have apostle, capital A, if you will, appointed by Christ. There were 12 of them. And then apostles, small a, if you will, which were ministers or sent ones of the church. 12 appointed, 12 sent ones, or 12 appointed by Christ. And then apostles, lowercase a, sent out by the churches. Now, in a sense, think about it. As Christians, we all have an apostolic ministry. Okay? Not as the twelve, but as little apostles, little fellows, little men and women, right? Because Jesus said this. Jesus said, As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. Does, does Christ call us to preach the gospel? Preach it to every creature. Tells us to make disciples. So these apostles spoken of here, context of Ephesians 4, are the 12 that were appointed by Christ for that apostolic, unique ministry that was foundational to the church. 12 of them. I'm indebted to these men. You ought to be indebted to these men. Because there's nothing that has caused more spiritual growth and maturity in my life with the work of the Holy Spirit in my life than the doctrine of the apostles. The doctrine of the apostles through Scripture. Because of the Scriptures and understanding of the Scriptures and application of the Scriptures that transforms your thinking. And it brings you to that next level of maturity and proper representation of the head, Jesus Christ. Okay, we got apostles down? Twelve apostles. That leads us to some what? Some prophets. Now, we, we, we'll, we'll associate prophet oftentimes with someone who predicts future events, like the Old Testament prophets. 
they come and they declare God's wrath to be unleashed, right? And sure enough, if they were a true prophet, what happened? It was unleashed. And we can read account after account after account of these men called by God in the Old Testament who would foretell, foretell future events, and they happen. These prophets, New Testament prophets, they're ones who don't foretell, but they foretell that which has already been given by Christ at this time to the apostles. So the apostles laid the theology. It seems that they were more given to the theology, supernatural instruction by Christ to the apostles. These prophets would expound that truth to the church. They were kind of the follow-up guys. Okay, the apostles' ministry was to move about with the divine truth given to them by Christ. They would move around, declare that truth, set up the body, as the Holy Spirit would do. He'd breathe life into individuals. They would, in turn, develop what we know as elders, leaders in the church. And then these men would bring forth the truth declared by Christ to the apostles. So the apostles would lay the foundation of the theology. The prophets would go on and teach the theology, apply the theology. This is what you do. This is what it means. This is what you do with that theology, knowledge of God. We read of Agabus in Acts chapter 11, a New Testament prophet. And he predicted a famine. Okay, so there were accounts that they were given supernatural message from God to declare. He declared a famine. Acts chapter 11. He also predicted in Acts chapter 21. Remember, he took Paul's belt. He said, the owner of this belt, thus saith the Lord, his hands and feet will be bound. He will suffer persecution. That's exactly what happened. So we see that not only did they expound the truth declared by the apostles... God would also give them a supernatural insight or supernatural word, divine revelation. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. The gift of prophecy had to do with this. All, having an understanding of all mysteries and knowledge. Remember he said that about himself in chapter 3. All mysteries and knowledge. Meaning, of course, it's all spiritual truth. These prophets were called specifically to declare that truth, to declare that theology, to declare the very knowledge of God. Remember, the New Testament, they didn't possess what we have here today. Okay? It was in the process of being written, right? So the apostles would go out, pointed by Christ, declare this truth, and they would leave men there, New Testament prophets, to explain it, to teach, to build them up. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? In that day, there were many false prophets. And I've said this before. You've got to understand this. The biggest battle that the apostles fought, the biggest battle that New Testament prophets fought against, was not about the enemies outside wanting to take their heads off. The biggest battle that they fought was against false doctrine, false prophets, false apostles. Same is true today, right? God has his rightful representatives called by him. Well, God's truth is declared, that rattles the gates of hell right there. Because it's God's truth that transforms. 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And when the Holy Spirit begins to do a divine work through the proclaimed Word of Almighty God, as men called by God preach the Word, Satan will send out his counterfeits. Many times they're very charismatic. Many times they have big personalities. Many times they draw masses of people. And with that influence, they begin to, with a little bit of truth, a little bit of light, give a whole bunch of lies mixed in, and then all the people who think that they know the truth are now swayed to and fro, back and forth by every wind of what? Doctrine. It's not going to change. It's not going to change. It hasn't changed. God's called his men. Satan will counter with counterfeits. And unless a body is equipped, as we'll learn next week, unless you're equipped and perfected, brought to that place of maturity, you're going to be easily swayed back and forth. Every wind of doctrine that rolls into town, you'll get all emotional, you get caught up with the emotionalism of these big personalities that are, have a little bit of truth. You'll get caught up in it, and then you're doing just crazy stuff that has nothing to do with the knowledge of God. These men, gifts of God. Gifts of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. They were called the police themselves. Because the true prophets of the New Testament would police themselves, or anyone who professed to be a prophet, to see if that truth lined up with God's declared truth. You get it? Very important. What do we have today to do that? What do we have? you got the Word of God. And if some cat rolls into town, okay, you get three guys with three different messages. Right? In the first century church, three different guys rolled in with three different messages. It would be the guy that had the signs of an apostle. He has supernatural ability and powers that would authenticate the message that he's bringing. Okay, the church is 2,000 years established. We've got the word. So when three cats roll into town with three different messages, what do you have to line up with what they're saying? You've got the word of God. Now, if you don't know doctrine, if you don't know which that which is declared through Scripture, you will be easily swayed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. This is why we meet. This is why we're not going to entertain here. We're going to teach you the truth of God so you can be rooted and grounded in truth, rooted and grounded in love. Operating and functioning is a body part within that body as a whole. So prophets, they were vital. They were vital to keep the continuity of the church flowing. You get it? Some apostles, some prophets. That ministry of the prophets totally sustained the church. Holy Spirit was doing the work. He didn't fold people into his church, bringing people out of darkness, right into the light. In Ephesians 2.20, again, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Okay? Just as there's no apostles in the capital A sense today, there's no prophets today in, in, as far as revelation goes. As far as divine revelation goes, there's no prophets in that sense today. Prophets today would one, be one who doesn't foretell the future, but he foretells that which has already been laid down, you see? That's a big difference. There's people on TV, they also profess to be prophets. They got a new word from God. God has shown them something new. And it's funny, it doesn't line up with the word of God, but he showed them something new. Okay? 
There's a guy on TV who declared that in 1992 God was going to wipe out every homosexual on the earth. Supernaturally. Not a loving message to lost people that were supposed to win to Christ. Amen? There's another guy on TV who said that because of our great TV ministry, people are going to be lying. Oh, wait. Oh, word from God here. God's telling me that people are going to lay out their dead family members, literally take their hand from their casket, put it on the TV screen, and God's going to bring them back to life. That's the kind of nonsense going on now. But it's nothing new. It's nothing new. You had this big revival, Brownstown revival down in Florida. A bunch of people running around crazy and whacking their head. People would give themselves to their ministry. They would think they got these prophets of God down there. They would think that they got these people that would put hands on people. They come back to life. And some poor man somewhere in the Midwest had a little, little baby of his who died. Packed that baby on ice in a cooler. Went down to the Brownsville revival in hopes that one of these great prophets could lay their hand on this young baby and bring him back to life. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Now, these apostles, these prophets, the torch today, the baton today has been passed on to the evangelists and the pastors. The work of the foundational work of the apostles and the New Testament prophets, that baton has been passed on to evangelists and shepherd teachers or pastors. Okay? Now here we have some evangelists. We're moving from apostle, we've gone on to prophet, now here we are on to evangelists. An evangelist is a preacher of the good news. You get it? Good news. Gospel means good news. He's a preacher of that good news. He's there to announce the good news. He's there to declare the good news. And when you think of evangelist, you can write down on a piece of paper the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear evangelist, and we probably get a lot of different answers, right? You probably get, you know, well, those fellers on TV that they got the holy water, right? They got a little bottle, literally, they'll send you holy water, right? From the Jordan. Yeah. You got guys that have uh, pieces of cloth, it's prayer cloth. You know, for 1995 or whatever you can give, I'll put hands on this thing, I'll pray over this thing, and I'll send it to you in the mail. You can lay it on your bills, and God's going to bless your life, right? God's gonna, you're going to flourish financially. I, I declare God's blessing on your life. That type of deal, right? We may think of Billy Graham. He's had a faithful ministry for 50-some years of evangelizing, going around the world, declaring the truth of Jesus Christ. You think of evangelists, you might think of the guy that stands on his soapbox somewhere, right? Downtown, corner, preaching the gospel with a bullhorn. This was a few decades ago that to sell soap, I think it was in the 1800s, to sell, early 1900s, to sell soap, these guys would come out with their little box and they'd have soap in it. They'd bring some hobo or homeless guy out who's all dirty and grubby, wash him up, declaring the kind of work that this soap does to clean somebody up. Well, these Christians got hold of that. They would come out and stand on a soapbox and say, Jesus can do on the in inside what the soap does on the outside. And that's where the whole soapboxing came from. A lot of things will come to mind. A biblical evangelist is this. A biblical evangelist was someone who went where Christ was not proclaimed. He would go in, proclaim Christ, 
the Holy Spirit would change the lives of those, and then he would remain there to get them rooted and grounded foundationally. Okay? He would root them and ground them foundationally. He would also train up other men, known as elders, to take over the leadership of that church, and then he would move on to a new place where the gospel wasn't preached, and he'd do it again. It's not a guy, as it's been said, he has three suits, three sermons, he blows into town, does a big event, and rolls out of town. Biblical evangelism is going where Christ is not proclaimed, proclaiming that truth, the Holy Spirit doing the transformed work in their lives, and then he remains to lay down some foundation. And then he goes. It also means winning people to Christ and enfolding them into the body of Christ, you see. If you lead someone to Christ on the street, your job, wherever, if Christ does that supernatural work, you know what your first job is? You bring them into the body so that they can take a seat here and they become to get what? What you're doing right now. Equipped. Equipped. I study to get equipped. I come in here and share what God has, has taught me through his word so that you can grow by it. And then you take out what you learn and you dispense it to the people in your life. And it's just this ongoing work, you see? This ongoing work. The Lord brings a non-believer into your life. You evangelize. You declare the truth. You declare the good news. He'll transform their heart. You can't. So if you're afraid or intimidated to evangelize because you haven't seen anyone's life transform before your eyes, that's not your job. Amen? They'll take a load off you, by the way. It is not your job to convert anybody. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's our job to simply declare the gospel and to live it. To live it. We win them to Christ. We unfold them into the body. You just don't leave them standing out there alone, right? If you have a little baby, you don't leave it. You nurture it. You feed it. You develop it so that it can grow up. And when God transforms lives, we unfold them into the body to do the very same thing spiritually. So biblical evangelism, the ability to go, win people to Christ. You can do that right here in San Diego where you live. God transforms their life. You unfold them into the body. Fold them into the body. See, missionaries are like this. Missionaries, they go, they proclaim the truth, and they remain there, and they build the people up before they move on. Or they build other men and women up to build these new converts up, and then they move on. Biblical evangelism. Great parallel. The evangelists were kind of like the apostles. Their ministry was more itinerant. They just kind of went around. They traveled around, declared the truth. God changed lives. They get them established, and they move on. So evangelists is kind of like the apostle. The work of the prophet is much like the work of the preacher, the teacher, the pastor, shepherd. Because what he does, he remains in one place, and he teaches, 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 teaches the flock. And then they grow in grace. Pastors, teachers. So let's look at this. We've looked at, he himself gave, verse 11, chapter 4 of Ephesians, he himself gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and look at this one, some pastors and teachers. Okay, there's no, the word some is not before teachers. The word some is before pastors and teachers, so it would be read pastors, that is, teachers, a hyphenated word, pastor, teacher, teaching shepherd. It's one office. It's one office. Pastor, shepherd. 
So the, the Greek construction of the word would read some shepherd teachers. I'm a shepherd, which means I have to teach. I teach because I love to teach. I teach because I'm called to teach. And then you love to see the product of the teaching. The saints grow to what? Maturity. And then in turn go and teach others. The word pastor, side note, it appears only once in the entire Bible, and it's right here in Ephesians. It's a Latin word. It actually means pastoral, as in pasture, like where sheep are or where cows are. Pastoral, pasture. So it makes perfect sense, right? Teaching shepherds. The role of the shepherd teacher is to feed, 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 feed. That's my role. Any pastor that you've ever had, hopefully he's beginning to feeding, 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 teaching, teaching, teaching. That's his role. That's his function. Acts 20.28. Mark this down. Acts 20.28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves. This is the church leaders, by the way. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving his overseers. Now, do you remember Peter? We all love Peter, amen? Peter, what did he do? He denied Christ three times. The night he was arrested, he denied knowing him. The night he was arrested, he denied being associated with him. When he was arrested, he denied being one of his disciples. He went away miserable, a broken man. Jesus raised from the dead. He said, go tell, the, go tell the disciples and Peter that I've risen from the dead, right? You see that intimate relationship there. You see that graceful love of the Lord. And then he was standing on the seashore that one day when they went back fishing, right? Man standing on the seashore. They don't recognize him. It's Jesus. He's, he's uh, frying some fish. They've been out fishing all night. They caught nothing. He's throw the net over on the other side of the boat for the big catch, 152 fish, right? Well, they couldn't see him, but what did they recognize? His voice. Peter for some reason, put his clothes on and then jumped in the water. Swims to shore. They haul in the fish. Peter's standing there. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. He goes, feed my flock. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Feed, 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 is what he said. Feed, Feed, feed. He denied him three times. Jesus restores him. Ask him three times, do you love me? Leadership for pastor, leadership for shepherd, principle and pattern. Principle and pattern. I have to know the principles. I have to be a student of the Word so that I can teach you the Word. The pastor's role is to lead in principle and in pattern a life that reflects Christ. Amen? Elders in this church... Okay, people who, men who will become elders in this church over time, it's not because they're a good old boy. No. It's not because they're there every week. They're going to have to meet the requirements of what a biblical elder is. Principle, pattern. Pattern, principle. Living it, knowing it, 
able to defend it, able to refute false doctrine, feeding the lambs, feeding the sheep. Because church leadership is a plurality of leadership. And then we develop the flock together. 1 Peter 4.16, Paul says to Timothy, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. And continue in that. You know, you say doctrine today, and a lot of people in church just trip. Oh, let's not get too deep, right? Guys, you must know doctrine. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. We will learn doctrine here, which will mature you in the faith, will perfect your faith, and you become a better equipped apostle, small a, messenger, sent one, amen? Paul said this about himself in, in Philippians 4.9. He says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. That's leading. He said, look at my life and just follow and do what I do. So he would instruct them, instruction, warning and teaching, warning the flock, this is what's wrong. You don't want to go here because this is the end result. Teaching, this is what you do. This is how you grow. This is how you glorify God. That's the role of the pastor. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, slash teachers. Pastors, that is, teachers. Okay, look, the focus today, you guys, I'm not looking at any empty chairs here. I'm not talking to the empty chair. My concern is not for us to fill up those empty chairs. My concern is to fill you up with the truth. You get it? My focus is not on the empty chairs. My focus as a shepherd must be on the chairs that are full. Okay? We won't be sending out mailers to houses. Okay? We won't be giving them some crafty little thing, come here and we'll feed your every worldly whim. No, God will bring the people and we're going to build up the saints. That's, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. Some guys are given today and they look at success as by the number of people who come. And they get focused on the empty chairs instead of the full chairs. And then you have saints that know nothing. They are swayed. We're going to focus on the filled ones. When you're filled, you can go disciple. You go evangelize. You go disciple people. You fold them into the body. Amen? That's the work of the ministry. And I heard a guy say that you can't measure something without a number. And that may be true. I wasn't able to think of anything. <laughs> but there's one thing that's for certain that you cannot measure with a number. Two things you cannot measure with a number. The truly saved and the spiritually mature. You cannot measure with a number those who are truly saved. You can see the visible church, but we don't know everyone in here is saved. You don't know that. So you can't measure those things. The faithfulness comes in to delivering the truth week after week after week after week, day after day. Doctrine is the heart of the ministry, guys. Doctrine is the heart of the ministry. Correct, sound teaching to bring the saints to maturity. 1 Timothy 4.6, mark this down. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. And then chapter 4, verse 11, he says, these things command and teach. Command and teach. 
If doctrine is the heart of ministry, what's the key? It's right here, guys. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And as I am a student of the Word and then a teacher of the Word, that's to exhort you to become students of the Word and teachers of the Word. You know, Peter, when he spoke, he taught with repetition, repetition, repetition. And he wrote this. Check this out. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. How many of you come to learn positional righteousness over the weeks? Come on. How many of you didn't really know it before or understand it before? Come on. Okay. Can you teach someone positional righteous now? Who's positionally righteous and why you're positionally righteous? You know why? Repetition, repetition, repetition. Peter said this about himself. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of th these things even after my decease, even when I'm in the grave, even when tradition says he got crucified upside down, that you'll remember it when I'm long gone. That's the furtherance of the kingdom. That's outside of here and now. That's outside of today. That's down the road. Repetition. See, I'm going to have to give it a count for the way I lead here. Period. Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. There's a great exhortation for you. For they wash out for your souls as those who must give an account. James 3, 1, Beware lest many of you become teachers knowing we will receive a stricter judgment. Amen? So all my concern is to make sure I'm teaching you the right stuff. For me to make sure I'm getting the doctrine right, I've got to spend time in the doctrine to dispense it to you so that you can be what we look at next, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints or the perfecting of the saints, for the maturity of the saints. So we move from the sums to the fours, right? We have some apostles. These are gifts of God to his church. Some were apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some preacher or some pastors and teachers, and here we go to the fours, for the what? Quickening of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. This is where the fruit comes. This is where you get to see the fruit, you see. For the maturity of the body. For the equipping. See, it's, it's a body. When you called me and hired me, you didn't call me to do the work of the ministry. Okay? If you think you did, you, you weren't thinking right. If you, did, you don't call a pastor to do the work of the ministry. You call a pastor to shepherd the flock to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Amen? And he says it right here. Because he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Equipping, you mark this down. This word also means to restore something to its original condition. To restore something to its original condition. The same word is used when John and James were in the boat with their father Zebedee as fishermen. You know what they were doing with their nets after a hard day work? Mending them. You go scraping on the bottom of all that stuff, they get chopped up, cut up, get holes in them, fish get out, so they would mend them, they would sew them up. It's like mending a broken bone. So it's bringing the saints from a place of disobedience and sinfulness into a place of obedience and rightful, proper representation of the head. Equipping. Equipping. To the who? Equipping of the what? 
saints. Equipping the saints. So we have some for this. For the equipping of the saints. You're the saints. All who believe in Jesus Christ. All true believers. Moving from sin to obedience. So how are you moving? How are you moving? That's the question. A little, ap a little application here. How are you moving? See, the moving of the Christian, the Christian life is a continual, ongoing place of what? Repentance. 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 As we grow in knowledge, we apply that knowledge, we become more outwardly, that which we already are inwardly, perfect, mature. That's walking worthy, you see. So you got the job of the men of God called to do the work of the ministry, which is to preach and teach, to equip the flock, to really do the work of the ministry, and the work of the ministry here, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the what? Edifying of the body. Edifying of the body. Okay, quick illustration as we wrap up. Turn to Acts 6. Acts chapter 6. The Lord's doing a great work here in His church. wasn't long after His ascension. It's got places for men in leadership. The apostles are doing their work. And in chapter 6, verse 1 of Acts, it says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were being neglected in daily distribution. Okay? So you had these widows, Greek-speaking people, coming and being neglected of the daily needs that they had as widows, whereas the Jews were being taken care of. They saw this. They began to complain. This is, there's kind of this unbalanced provision being made by the church. Okay? So, verse 2. Then the twelve, then the twelve, this is after Judas is dead, Matthias takes his place, summoned the multitude of the disciples, and he said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, verse 3, brethren, okay, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Okay, not just anybody. Seven men full of good, have good reputation, who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of of the word. So the leaders of the church, the apostles in this context, were to be given to prayer and to the study of doctrine. Study of doctrine. And then what they did with the body is they selected people who definitely have the Holy Spirit, they're saved, and they have a reputation that rightly reflects their profession of faith, and they put them over the distribution. They put them overseeing that those needs were taken care of. And they gave themselves to prayer and the study of the Word. That's the job of the leaders in the church. It doesn't mean that you're beyond cleaning the toilet, right? At all. As a matter of fact, not to pat myself on the back, but for your benefit today, the toilet was a mess, so I cleaned it before I came out. Okay? So I will clean the toilet that needs to be done, but my focus will be being in the Word of God, praying on your behalf, praying for the maturity of this church so that you can be equipped to do the work of the ministry. And what that will lead to is the next part. What does it lead to? The saints doing the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body. Edify. 
needs to build up, literally needs to build a house. You start in the bottom, amen? You don't start with the pretty stuff up top, okay? Window trimmings and all that stuff and, you know, clay roof tiles that look all pretty. You start with a foundation, amen? And you build on the foundation. You build on the foundation, and then the house looks good, and it operates, and the rooms are functioning, all the ceiling fans work, all the lights go on, they turn off when you turn them off, right? It edifies the body. The leader, the leaders, give themselves the prayer, to study, to teach, to equip you to become fully mature, perfected, so that you can edify and do the work of the ministry, you edify one another. That's the function. That's why this, we meet. That's our purpose. That's our purpose. And now in the overall scheme of things, check this out. In the overall picture, it is no more my job to go visit the sick than it is yours. At all. We have a perfect example of that with Robert Russell, who is in a wheelchair right now. I haven't been going solely to visit him. As a matter of fact, I got there a couple weeks ago. There's already three guys from the church there. There's people bringing them meals, he and his wife. That's the working of the body. That's the work of ministry. Amen? It's no more my job to disciple new converts than it is yours. No more. I'm not here to do the work of the ministry. I'm here to equip you to do the work of the ministry. I still do ministry. This, is my, this happens to be my focus, you see. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers for the equipping of the flock, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, for the building up of the body. And we'll see what that leads to next week. Gifts. Let me give you some perfect examples the last few days. You're sitting in new chairs, right? Kept hearing people's legs falling asleep, backs hurting. This is a very important time. The saints meeting to get equipped. Very important time. Period. Okay? But there's someone who has the gift of giving in this church that gave a huge portion of the church that you're sitting in today. There's, there was a great financial need that someone had in this church. Someone has the gift of giving. They got ear of it. Gave above and beyond what you could ever imagine. Hospitality. People giving to hospitality. People who have the gift of helps. We had, I don't know how many people here yesterday, setting up these chairs, working in the children's ministry building. We got new space over there for youth. People busting walls out, doing work. They had the gift of helps. Working away. It's the body functioning together. We don't have to go out and hire someone to do it. Amen? It's the work of the ministry. Work of the ministry. I looked at the children's ministry. I went down to visit Brett, who oversees the children's ministry. He showed me the curriculum for their little week's lesson. I was looking at all these pictures that brought me back to Sunday school. The Tower of Babel and one guy trying to communicate and the other guy with a big question mark over his head, right? So they're going through Genesis. And he took those big illustrations that are about 8 by 12 or whatever, that, 8 by 11, shrunk them down to this little size, and then on another card he put Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 and 4, Genesis 5 and 6, Genesis 7 and Genesis 8. Gives them to him, and then it's up to the kid to take the illustration and put it with the right chapter. That is work of the ministry. Brilliant idea. Work of the ministry. Children's ministry. We need men serving children as much as we do women. And we operate together as one. I'll do my role, you do your role. We reflect the head in a way that honors the head, Jesus Christ. Amen?